From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Arthritis is the swelling and tenderness of one or more of your joints. And the main symptoms of arthritis are joint pain and stiffness, which typically worsen with age. While there are over 100 kinds of arthritis, the two most common types are osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis. On today's program, we'll get tips for living with arthritis from a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we know about preventing heart disease, but what if the damage is already done? Can heart disease be reversed? And how regenerative medicine is helping patients. All of that, along with a health minute from Vivian Williams, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. If you have arthritis, at least you're not alone. More than 50 million Americans, probably more than that, have arthritis. And that means one in every five adults in addition to 300,000 children. It is the number one cause of disability in this country. Now, the first steps in conquering arthritis are learning the facts, understanding your condition, and knowing that help is available. Mayo Clinic has a book, don't they? Absolutely. Mayo Clinic has a book, the highly acclaimed book, Living with Arthritis, How to Manage Pain and Lead an Active Life. And joining us on today's program is one of the editors of Living with Arthritis, Mayo Clinic rheumatologist, Dr. John Davis. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, uh, Tom. Tracy, really appreciate the opportunity. So uh, I know that this book has been in highly successful. Uh, a lot of people have read it. So congratulations to you and your colleagues on, on, on a great book. Our listeners would like to know, what exactly is arthritis? The challenge with arthritis is it's such a broad term. And um, really, there are many, over 100 different kinds of arthritis. But uh, the main thing, inflammation does occur in joints. And to me, that's what arthritis means. But the causes are very diverse. There are two main types of arthritis, one being degeneration of the joint. That is that the cartilage kind of breaks down and the underlying bone breaks down, and that leads to inflammation. That is mainly called osteoarthritis, which is the most common type of arthritis. And as you pointed out, Tom, leads to the most disability um, really of any condition in the United States right now. And then other types are inflammatory, and rheumatoid arthritis is the most common form of inflammatory arthritis. And that is where the immune system basically begins to attack a person's own joints and causes pain and and, uh, disability uh, on that basis. So those are the, the major differences. Can a patient have both osteo and rheumatoid arthritis? It's very common for patients with rheumatoid arthritis to also have osteoarthritis. The other situation is less common, of course, because rheumatoid affects about 0.5 to 1% of people worldwide, and osteoarthritis is very common, especially with age. It, it, above you know, 70, it, almost most patients have uh, osteoarthritis to some degree. So it's a, it really a disease of the, of the cartilage, right? The cartilage uh, and the end of the bone wears out, and it's like the glistening part of the end of a chicken bone. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a good a good description of of the degenerative arthritis form that you talked about, osteoarthritis. That's right. And rheumatoid arthritis, how is that different? Well, in rheumatoid arthritis, inflammation is occurring in the lining of the joint. That's called synovitis. And so, if you think about Jello, almost, um, if you open up the joint, you would see this sort of gelatinous material um, that really is the inflammation occurring. And so. The reason that the, the lining of the joint expands is because white blood cells are rushing into the joint uh, through the bloodstream 
to attack the joint, and that causes swelling of the lining. But in both cases, it's the cartilage that gets destroyed. Uh, The cartilage and the bone, that's right. Mm -hmm. Both men and women experience these the same? I would say that osteoarthritis is pretty balanced. Rheumatoid arthritis is about three to one, female to male ratio, Mm. and so more common among women. And most autoimmune diseases have a bit of a gender bias, so that women are more commonly affected than men, although men too. Symptoms of both types? Similar, you know, very similar overall. I think the major symptoms of arthritis in general are pain, stiffness or loss of mobility of a joint. Oftentimes stiffness is is accentuated after prolonged inactivity or first thing in the morning. Um, fatigue, tiredness, these are other symptoms that commonly affect patients. Okay, so every morning when I get up and it, <laughs> it, there is stiffness in my ankles, my knees, the whole way around, is that arthritis? You know, stiffness is a pretty undifferentiated term mm-hmm. uh, and goes along with a lot of different conditions, including just normal life, maybe not sleeping so good, stress. So this can cause people to feel stiff in the morning. The difference is that in people with um, with arthritis, it's it's the joint that's stiff, and there is limitation of motion that limbers up after exercise first thing in the morning mm-hmm. or with uh, exercise during the day. Rheumatoid arthritis, the stiffness tends to be more severe and more prolonged, mm-hmm. and so it often may last more than an hour before it begins to limber up. Osteoarthritis, by far and away the most common. The wear and tear arthritis, Mm -hmm. age, obviously the most common risk factor. So let's talk about the treatment options. And let's start with, uh, if if you see a patient who has mild osteoarthritis, but it's interfering with uh, some of the things that they would like to do, and it's painful, how do you go about choosing a treatment regimen? You know, you have to individualize, and part of it is what treatments seem most agreeable to a given person. But the basic things are we have medications that can help, and we have sort of non-medication approaches. Um, I would often encourage physical therapy and exercise early on. For knee arthritis, we can do exercises to strengthen the muscles around the knee to better support the joint and support the cartilage. If there's a lot of pain at night or if there's a lot of more swelling, infl- uh, inflammation-type symptoms, sometimes joint injections can be helpful, so we inject steroid right into the joint. In terms of day-to-day pain management, we would consider a acetaminophen uh, for mild pain. Um, patients often get better response with what drugs that are called non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So that's your ibuprofen um, or naproxen that you can get over the counter. Um, those medications help, and we try to use those uh, somewhat sparingly and maybe on an as-needed basis as opposed to every day um, because there can be some side effects and risks that go along with those medications. Um, for example, stomach ulcers can occur have to watch the blood pressure, as blood pressure can become elevated in those patients, um, and maybe watch kidney uh, function over time, too. But um, those are some treatments that can definitely help. Part of it is about uh, managing activities and sort of trying to do certain tasks differently so they don't cause flare-ups. What about Uh, any creams or topical things that you could put on? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, There are some topical creams that sometimes we use. People use things like uh, various freezes that are available over the counter. Um, uh, There are some uh, actual anti-inflammatory gels that one can place. Something called diclofenac gel is a cream that can be rubbed on, or actually a gel that can be rubbed on joints can have some anti-inflammatory benefits. So so people try different things in, in, in forms of that, and I think that can be helpful. Capsaicin cream is another one that people use. I think back in uh, September, I saw uh, the Arthritis Foundation came out with something about CBD Mm. being like, uh, maybe it's giving some patients some relief. Um, Are you aware of that announcement? And what what about CBD? So I I guess CBD, my take on CBD is, um, you know, it's out there and people are trying it. Uh, That much is very clear. And I'm very open-minded about it. 
partly because I know patients need better options for pain management in arthritis, and so I'm hopeful that we can find some new things. Um, CBD, you know, coming from hemp, and which is now available in many different stores that have proliferated around Rochester and other parts, um, has some challenges, but I have seen people uh, report a lot of benefit, a lot of better control of pain and, and stiffness in osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis and probably other diseases too. Others have not gotten so much benefit, and so I think it's been kind of hit or miss in my practice and people what, what people have tried. Part of the challenges is how um, good the product is that people are buying, and there's a great deal of variability in terms of whether whether or not the products contain the amount of CBD they say that that, that is there, and also whether or not it contains THC, which is the part that causes more of the high of mm-hmm. uh, of cannabis and really marijuana as far as the illegal product, um, and, um, and 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 can cause some side effects actually. So those are some of the issues. I think we need. Um, First of all, you know, better products, they're more reliable. We need more knowledge about what the benefits and risks are. Mm-hmm. There are some interactions with other medications that people have to be aware of. And, and in general, I think important for patients, um, if they're interested in CBD, to talk to their healthcare provider or physician to go over what the particular benefits or risks might be. Yeah. They have incomplete knowledge, but at least they can help some. You buy two jars of it, one jar might work, the other jar wouldn't. There's no way for you to know. That's true. Are there any prescription medications that are better than what you can buy over the counter for pain? That's a, that's a great uh, question, Tom. I think not necessarily. You know, and some people actually, I, I try to prescribe a, a prescription NSAID or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, and they prefer just the over-the-counter, you know, leave or, or ibuprofen. Um, those can work very well. Um, a, a couple things. One is that if you don't like taking pills as often, prescription strength forms often can can be taken less often, even once daily or twice daily, as opposed to, you know, for ibuprofen, you have to take it three or four times a day to get mm-hmm. 24 hours of coverage, if you will. Um, there also is one uh, medication called celecoxib, which is more, um, it's, a, it's, it's a sort of a selective medication that doesn't interfere with the stomach as much and so has a lower risk of causing gastrointestinal side effects or stomach ulcers. And that often uh, is, is a benefit too. But um, it depends on the situation and maybe other health problems. Sometimes we have to try three or four to find what works best because people are different uh, and can have you know, unique effects of different medications, including the NSAIDs. All right, I want to ask you about some alternative treatments. First of all, glucosamine chondroitin sulfate. A lot of people taking it. Is there evidence that it actually helps? I would say overall the evidence is pretty weak that it actually helps. There was a large uh, trial sponsored by um, the, the federal government in the United States that did not report overall benefit. There was a subgroup of people who had very high pain from osteoarthritis who did have benefit. However, in Europe, um, they use a different formulation. They use glucosamine sulfate as opposed to glucosamine hydrochloride, which is the form that I believe was done in the United States trial. And they did find evidence of some benefit in a randomized controlled trial, which is the best type of data we know of. So I think it's um, controversial. I think in general the evidence is pretty weak that it's effective, but it probably has low risk. And I guess I'm open to patients trying it for a short period of time. And if they feel it helps them, I'm, I'm open to that possibility. Who's you? That's what about other vitamins and supplements? Any out there that you have recommended mm-hmm. to your patients or suggested they try? You know, a lot of supplements out there, as you know. Um, I have had people get benefit from turmeric. 
Mm-hmm. And um, and some people really think it does have some anti-inflammatory effects. Are they taking capsules? Or are they drinking? Uh, no, they're taking capsules okay. or, or, or generally in capsule form. Um, you can buy yeah. many forms of turmeric. One thing to be aware of, that medication does have some, some increased bleeding effects. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's not necessarily a free ride if, you, if you're trying to avoid NSAIDs because of bleeding risk if you're taking blood thinners. This isn't necessarily better than that. So just to be aware of that issue. All right. How important is weight control when it comes to arthritis? Isn't there a significant relationship? Isn't osteoarthritis much more common in the weight-bearing joints in people? who are obese? Mm-hmm. I think there's two effects of weight. And, uh, and Tom, it, certainly weight control is, uh, is absolutely critical, I think, uh, in arth- arthritis management, really of any type. Um, o- overweight and obesity is a risk factor for all kinds of arthritis, including osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis, uh, probably through different ways. Part of it's the load. And so certainly for the knee, uh, increased weight and obesity creates a great deal of load that's magnified um, over what you would think it would be. But also uh, increased uh, weight and, and uh, fat in the body increase increased inflammation, which mm-hmm. probably also accelerates osteoarthritis. So for those reasons, very important um, to achieve a healthy weight if you have arthritis or at least to lose weight. Uh, even setting modest weight loss goals can be really important in, in overall managing symptoms and, and preventing progression. So I think those are crucial issues. All right. Our guest is rheumatologist, Mayo Clinic rheumatologist, Dr. John Davis, one of the editors of the book, Living with Arthritis. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about rheumatoid arthritis. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is Mayo Clinic rheumatologist, Dr. John Davis. We've talked about the most common form of arthritis, osteoarthritis, wear and tear arthritis, age the biggest risk factor. A lot of people have it. Uh, now we want to talk about rheumatoid arthritis. Not nearly as common, but as you mentioned, it affects women three times as often as men. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that disease. Rheumatoid arthritis is, is kind of my you know thing I sort of specialize in in my practice. It's it's often misunderstood by the general public. Um, it's it's less you know easy to understand what it sort of means. Again, really, it's a condition in which the immune system of a person is attacking one's own joints, and uh, it can come on gradually over years. Sometimes it comes on out of the blue overnight, uh, very quickly. So very diverse. It tends to affect small joints and large joints, and so people often have a lot of arthritis symptoms in their hands, feet, but also can affect shoulders, hips, knees, ankles, etc. Um, very disabling at times, um, and people can, you know, if, if when it occurs in, in people who are still working, they may have to go off, off of work for a long time, they may have to change professions even. So uh, all-encompassing in its effects, even the word arthritis is a bit of a misnomer. Because it, it goes beyond the joints, it can target other tissues, it can cause eye inflammation, lung inflammation, heart inflammation. So really it's a systemic disease mm. that has some similarities to other autoimmune diseases such as lupus or in others. Is this a family history? More? Family history is, uh, is part of it. About 50% of the risk is probably genetic and, and due to inheriting uh, up to over 100 different genes that may predispose to the disease. Uh, but also its environment too, because even identical twins do not have the same risk of getting the disease. It's only about a 20 to 40% concordance, hmm. even though the genes are identical. So clearly, uh, environment is a factor. It seems that smoking is a major risk factor. Obesity is a risk factor. There are other things that we clearly don't understand about, uh, about the environmental factors. If someone comes into you with pain, stiffness, swelling of their joints, you suspect it's rheumatoid arthritis. Is there a test that you can do to prove that it's rheumatoid arthritis? 
At the end of the day, rheumatoid arthritis is a clinical diagnosis, meaning that really it's the clinician has to decide if the, if the diagnosis is correct. There are tests that can help. We do a test called rheumatoid factor and a test called anti-CCP. And um, those two blood tests are part of the diagnosis, but there are patients who are so-called seronegative, meaning that those antibody tests uh, for the condition are actually negative and, and they can still have rheumatoid arthritis. So it really requires a thorough history, physical examination, and some laboratory testing by a rheumatologist or a competent physician to be able to decide if that's the correct diagnosis. Can you ever re- reverse this? I mean, if you are diagnosed with this in your 40s mm-hmm. or 50s, 30s, whatever... Do you reverse it, or is it just something that you're going to have to manage the rest of your days? It's The outcomes have really improved. Um, even in, in 2019, we don't have a cure for this disease. We're working on it. Um, it. It turns out that just like once you see you get chicken pox, your body you know, has antibodies, has an immune response to control that virus. Right. So once your body becomes sensitized to your own joints, it doesn't easily unlearn that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, at this time, the goal is to achieve remission with medications, and remission means that we basically squelched all the inflammation in the joints, and then people who are in remission get pretty close to feeling normal oftentimes, that their pain is can be can be virtually gone or, or infrequent. They have energy levels that are pretty close to normal again. Again, it varies. Sometimes even some of the symptoms linger even if we've, we, we've reduced the inflammation dramatically. Um, unfortunately, a lot of uh, tenure remission is not everyone, but the outcomes are dramatically improved with current treatment strategies. So, so I think the outcomes have become much, much better. We have many different types of medications to uh, control the inflammation, and that has led to um, improved longevity, uh, improved ability to maintain work, improved ability to um, enjoy uh, life and, and do things um, that one wants to do. So. So uh, th- that's the great news about about rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, truly, the treatments are so much better than they used to be. You rarely see the patient with the severe hand deformities mm-hmm. that we used to see years ago. So Absolutely. congratulations. And, and you said that you're close to a cure? Uh, close. <laughs> People are, you know, because we're understanding um, the immune system and understanding better what's going wrong, mm-hmm. um, we're beginning to think how we might be able to reset that. I also want to mention there's there's a great deal of effort going into prevention. So the idea of finding people who are either genetically predisposed or who already have some early signs of reactivity of their immune system to their own joints developing. And then we could potentially do different interventions. We could put them on, on a diet. We could ask them to stop smoking. We could maybe give them a medication and try to prevent them from going on to develop full-blown rheumatoid arthritis. The reason we can do that is because the I mentioned that one blood test called anti-CCP. It turns out that in people who get rheumatoid arthritis, that antibody is detectable for years before they come down with symptoms. So now there is actually a prevention trial going on in the United States trying to identify people with those antibodies but without joint inflammation and to put them on a medication called hydroxychloroquine for a year uh, and then see if we can prevent the disease from actually occurring. The book is called Living with Arthritis, How to Manage Pain and Lead an Active Life. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic rheumatologist, Dr. John Davis. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, can damage caused by heart disease be reversed? And the latest breakthroughs in regenerative medicine. Coming up, a health minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Reported cases of pertussis, also known as whooping cough, have been on the rise since the 1980s, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Tina Arden, a family medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic, says whooping cough is becoming more common, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, declining vaccination rates or waning immunity from previous vaccines. That's why she and her colleagues are encouraging adults to get vaccinated at least once in their adult life. And pregnant women are encouraged to get a tetanus and whooping cough vaccine in their third trimester of pregnancy to help protect their baby. Now, pertussis is a bacterial infection that can cause upper respiratory symptoms that can be dangerous to younger patients, but also can cause a cough that can last several weeks to even months. It's referred to as whooping cough because of the whooping sound an infected person makes when gasping for air during a coughing fit. Anyone can become infected with pertussis. However, it can lead to serious complications, even death for infants under one. Nearly half of all babies under one in the U.S. who have pertussis end up being treated in the hospital. Complications are most serious for babies under six months. Vaccination is the best prevention. There are two types of vaccines available to protect people against pertussis. The diphtheria tetanus pertussis, or Tdap, is for younger children than seven years old. Tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis, or Tdap is for older children and adults, including pregnant women. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, as you know, there are millions of people in this country with heart disease. In fact, it's the number one killer of both men and women in the U.S. And the majority of those people have CAD, or coronary artery disease. And that's when the major blood vessels that supply the muscles of your heart, they supply blood, they supply nutrients, they supply oxygen, and when they become damaged or diseased, it's called coronary artery disease. And that, of course, is usually the result of cholesterol-containing deposits called plaque, along with a little inflammation, and it is a process that we know as atherosclerosis. When the plaque builds up, it narrows your coronary arteries, and that decreases the blood flow to your heart. Eventually, that can cause symptoms that you might recognize, chest pain, shortness of breath, a complete blockage can even cause a heart attack. We know there's lots of things that you can do to prevent heart disease, but what about reversing the damage that has already been done? Is that possible? Let's find out from Mayo Clinic preventive cardiologist, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. Dr. Kopetsky, good to see you. You know, I once heard you say that you wanted to start a coronary artery disease reversal clinic, suggesting that, in fact, if your coronary arteries were diseased, you could make them better. Yes, very clearly you can. We have the clinic. We just don't call it that, unfortunately. (laughs) But the data, the studies have shown you can reverse heart disease. You can reverse this narrowing of the arteries to the heart. As you mentioned, inflammation or the irritation of the lining of the artery is very important to reduce because that's what actually causes the blood clot to form and the heart attack to occur. And why do you get the inflammation in the first place? Well, that's a great question. There are many things that cause inflammation, smoking, uh, high blood pressure, diabetes. If you don't do those, you stop the progression of heart disease, of the narrowing. But it's really diet, stress control, exercise that will help not only stop the progression, but actually promote the regression or the opening up of the artery. Is there one of those that's most important? Diet, stress control. Number one risk factor now for early death and disease in the United States and soon to be the world, diet. Diet. It used to be smoking. 
Uh, smoking was, yeah. Uh, so when you say diet, does that mean you have to become a vegetarian to reverse this damage, or no. I'm well, going what kind of diet? broth broth only from here on? <laughs> right, no, no, you don't need to be a vegetarian, but it helps if you go more towards more plant based. So in the Mediterranean diet that we've talked about here before, it has four things that aren't vegetarian in it. Red meat, which it suggested three ounces a day, a deck of cards. Fish, you know, eat three or four times a week. Uh, dairy products, you know, which is, um, it's very limited, just a, like one pat of butter a day. And then uh, things like poultry, white meat, uh, you know, turkey or chicken, poultry. If you can eat mo- most of your calories being plant-based, fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, and then to get full on that stuff and add in a little bit of these other things. But the two things that Americans have forgotten about, and it's ubiquitous, is stress and social support and sleep. They all think, well, everybody's under stress, don't worry about it, and I don't get much sleep, I'm never am going to, so don't worry about that either. Those two are huge because they don't allow you to have resiliency and come back and change your lifestyle and lower your stress level. So your heart can be healthier if you get better sleep and reduce your stress. There is no doubt about that. Now, what about cholesterol? Do we still worry about that? The guidelines have come out, and there will be a new paper probably soon that will say cholesterol isn't that important. They said that a couple of years ago. And all the press picked up on was that, cholesterol not important. If they would read the article, it would say that we eat so much saturated fat and animal fat and saturated plant fat in this country that the cholesterol we take in isn't as important as it used to be. So you really ought to cut down both the cholesterol and the saturated fat. But you still believe in statins for people who have elevated cholesterol, or are you more suggesting that it can be controlled with diet? In most patients, it can be controlled with diet, but it takes a pretty radical change, and we ask them to migrate to a new diet over one to two years because you can't just do it tomorrow. So statins have been around for a long time, and there are a lot of people taking statins mm-hmm. still, right? Right. Any long-term side effects that you've identified? You know, we have uh, we have found uh, that it can lead to increased incidence of diabetes, but it's usually an earlier occurrence of diabetes than if you weren't on the statin. So if you are obese, have high fasting blood sugar, have metabolic syndrome with a big paunch, uh, you'll go into uh, become a diabetic about three months earlier than if you weren't on the statin. But for every one patient gets diabetes, five heart attacks are prevented. We've heard that term metabolic syndrome yeah. a, a, a lot, and it's difficult to understand for uh, us and our listeners. <laughs> yes. Explain that for yeah. us, will you? Metabolic, metabolic syndrome. syndrome has five factors. One, the main one is the big paunch, big abdominal obesity, which is a very active fat. It puts out chemicals that are bad for us. It makes us more insulin resistant. It which for women going through menopause, that's where you're likely to gain weight. Yeah, and women, it's really a higher risk factor okay. for them. Uh, second is blood pressure that's elevated. Third is the low HDL or low good cholesterol that cleans out the arteries. And then the uh, blood pressure, those are the factors that really lead to more inflammation. And if you can control those, you're much better off. We've heard you talk about fish oil before. And as I recall, you're a proponent. Uh, I want to know if you still are. And is that for everybody or is that just for people with heart disease? Well, it, fish oil helps a lot of people, and not just people with heart disease. You know, recent studies showed that high-dose fish oil, EPA, specifically a certain type of EPA, which is the thing you find on the bottle when you buy it in the store, will reduce uh, heart attacks if you have real high triglycerides, even if your LDL is controlled. 
When it comes to fish and fish oil, if you don't like fish, does fish oil take its place? Well, you'd like ideally to use both of them. And it's better to have the fish and you know, there's no pill that replaces lifestyle. And the Mediterranean diet is more than just a diet, it's a lifestyle. All right, aspirin, baby aspirin. Who should be taking it? You still uh, think it's a preventive for people who have had heart disease or have heart disease? Yeah, if you have had heart disease, aspirin is beneficial. There's no there's no uh, argument about that unless you have bleeding problems from it. If you don't have heart disease, it's not as helpful as we used to think it was. You have to be a higher risk for a heart attack over the next 10 years, 10, 12, 15% risk. Those people benefit. But the average person, which is lower, like 7, 8% risk, they, they probably wouldn't benefit. And how does it work? Uh, it stops the uh, inflammation in the lining of the arteries, and it also stops the blood clot formation in the lining of the artery. When uh, exercise is something that you're supposed to do, I think that can be in- intimidating for people. When you say exercise is what a patient needs to do, what does that mean? Yeah. Physical activity is why I've gone to more, because exercise, they kind of fold across their arms and, you know, and look at the ceiling. <laughs> and physical activity is two things. One, don't be sedentary. Every hour, get up and move around for three or four minutes. A lot of the big corporations around this country and the world now have a thing every hour where you get up and you move around. So go up two floors to go to the bathroom. Go talk to a, a colleague instead of sending him an email. The second thing is intense physical activity, which is what we used to do a lot of. When you do intense activity, three great things happen very quickly. One is the heart is told to pump more blood because the muscles say, hey, we're running from the saber-toothed tiger. we got to try to survive. The second thing is the blood vessels get bigger, which lowers blood pressure. And the third thing is the muscles say, okay, belly fat, you're up next. If we survive this run from the saber-toothed tiger, I need more energy because I only have 20 minutes of energy in my cell. You start breaking down and sending me extra energy because that's where we put extra calories as an adult. So it's the American dream, I call it. You can actually, we've shown here with research, you can reduce abdominal fat with interval activity. Our thanks to Dr. Stephen Kopetsky, preventive cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks, Dr. Kopetsky. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, regenerative medicine, what is it and how is it helping patients? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Download the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast today for the latest complete versions of interviews you hear on Mayo Clinic Radio. Find Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts on your favorite podcast providers. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, we have all heard the term regenerative medicine. What does that mean? Exactly. (laughs) What does it really mean? Well, I think it's the field of medicine that tries to replace or to regenerate human cells, human tissues, or even organs to get them back to normal. Now, it also includes the possibility of actually growing tissues and organs in the lab and implanting them in the body that can't heal itself. That's amazing. It is incredible stuff. In short, it's a way to actually repair or replace diseased or injured tissues and organs. And here to tell us more is the Director of Regenerative Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Andre Terzik. Welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Thank you for having me. Dr. Terzik, and it's it's an honor to have you on the program. So what has regenerative medicine allowed you to do that you never thought possible? It's an exciting time. I think we see successes around all fields of medicine, essentially. I think the breakthrough of the year, for example, is in cancer. We're able to treat many of the blood cancers in ways we never could imagine before. It's a different medicine than what we used to to train in school. We're using a technology called regenerative immunotherapy, also known as CAR T-cells, which is able to target 
cancer cells and very specifically get rid of them. So instead of, for example, chemotherapy, where it's toxic to all tissues, including the cancer, these are just targeted at the cancer and leave the rest of the body alone? You can almost speak of smart cells in many ways. So you're using your own body to essentially get rid of uh, of cancer cells. And the successes are, are throughout. Uh, another breakthrough of the year is clearly neurosurgery. We saw earlier this year the first case here at the Mayo Clinic where a patient that was quadriplegic was able to be treated successfully with uh, stem cell intervention. Of course, much more research needs to be done. Many more evidences needs to be put uh, put forward. But it is very encouraging to see these early early successes. Now you said stem cell intervention. Tell tell us exactly what you did to help restore this uh, quadriplegic. And quadriplegic means that the injury to the spinal cord was high enough that none of the limbs work. The stem cells are those magic seeds, in a way, that uh, originally we thought that if we implant them, let's say, into an injured tissue, they will regrow and unable to enable, essentially, the tissue to repair. We are increasingly seeing that it's not simply a brick-and-mortar interaction. They are, they are truly engaging the healing processes from within. So you actually heal, the cells help you heal by yourself. The, the way the skin, when we cut it, will, will heal on its own. Here, very complex organ tissues like the, the spinal cord has some attempts to, to heal. And um, in essence, we are using these technologies to promote essentially this uh, this healing we still do not know what gets to ultimately uh, ensure the repair but clearly it's promising is it nerves that are being repaired or muscles what what exactly is happening in this particular case the tissue that allows the nerve conduction in other cases as you mentioned could be the end organ the muscle for example but think of stem cells as only one technology you know we used to put uh, an equal sign between regenerative medicine and stem cell medicine. But increasingly, there are many more technologies that are being developed. You may not even need those seeds. You may be able to extract what really works within them, the active ingredient, and uh, use it as a, as a way to, to, to repair. So we speak of acellular regeneration, regeneration without stem cells. Hmm. So isn't it interesting that most tissues in our body have the ability to repair themselves, but the spinal cord does not? So what you did was you took some stem cells, injected them adjacent to the severed spinal cord, and helped it repair itself? The concept that some organs cannot repair is increasingly being challenged. Hmm. We, even uh, the spinal cord? Even the spinal cord. We went to school. Medical school, they told us the spinal cord cannot repair. Mm-hmm. We, they told us you will die with the heart you were born with. In other words, the heart cannot repair. But increasingly, we're understanding there is an innate ability of self-renewal. So each of our tissues, maybe at a very, in a very subtle way, can somewhat repair itself. And the goal of regenerative medicine is to boost that ability of self-repair. So we all want to be like the liver. Because the liver can regenerate. Can you learn some lessons from the liver? Indeed, from the liver, from the skin, from organs that typically are much uh, more readily renewable than others will be a guide how to, to proceed. 
What are other muscular uses? I mean, it, in my head, I'm thinking aging. I mean, so is how is this going to affect how we age? The goal with aging is not necessarily to extend lifespan. I think the goal and where regenerative medicine comes uh, central is to extend health span to match lifespan. And so we see it in many chronic diseases. And we see essentially regenerative medicine as a way not to fight disease. You know, we used to say we fight cancer, we fight cardiovascular disease, we fight diabetes, many of the diseases that come with with aging. Here, regenerative medicine is enabling us to speak more of rebuilding health. That's the essence, really, of, of the regenerative process. And when we say rebuilding health, is not just restoring form and function of a specific organ or tissue, but ideally, ultimately, rebuilding the human being in its in its totality, so a holistic almost process mm-hmm. of regenerative medicine. Now, I know you've been working for a long time on repairing heart muscle. Can you give us an update there? Because once someone has a heart attack and part of the muscle dies, that the heart, we've always been told, can't regenerate. What's dead is dead, but may not be true. Yeah, we have had indeed a remarkable experience with uh, heart regeneration and in particular in a condition called heart failure. So this will be a condition after heart attack where part of the muscle, as you mentioned, dies out. And what do we do for that part of the muscle? So really what we are doing, we are leveraging the self-repair capacity of the heart by introducing other stem cells, or now more increasingly these acellular approaches, the, the activating the juice of the stem cells, and achieving a repair that is indeed uh, very significant in many cases. But again, more research will be needed to fully establish these technologies going forward. So it may be that you're not going to die with the heart you were born with. Indeed. And what about uh, or the need for organ transplant? Are we going to get to a spot where we can grow the organ that we need? That's a huge field of interest and unmet need. And uh, tissue engineering being one component of the regenerative toolkit is indeed able to to make us dream and now no more dream anymore. Actually, there are very concrete examples of new organs that are built in this way. An effort here at the Mayo Clinic uh, is to build a new um, voice box, a new larynx. And uh, at the national level, this effort has been recognized and Mayo Clinic has been given the green light, actually, to launch the first uh, larynx transplant through regenerative technology in this space. So now that's amazing. So would this be someone who had injured their larynx or someone who had cancer of the larynx and had to be removed? Indeed, that will be a case, let's say, of an individual with a cancer of the larynx. Uh, sometimes uh, the, the voice is lost at that time. And uh, through this regenerative intervention, you are, can be fortunate to may need to remove maybe just half of the larynx and replace it with, uh, with a new half. One that you grew in the lab? That you grew in the lab and that you take advantage also of the body parts of the individual. And ultimately, uh, voice can be regained. So restoring not just form, but ultimately function 
is very critical. Regenerative medicine, the process of replacing or regenerating human cells, tissues, or organs to restore function. Regenerative medicine is also working on being able to grow tissues and organs in the lab and implanting them into someone who can't heal on their own. Exciting stuff. Our thanks to the director of the Mayo Clinic Center for Regenerative Medicine, Dr. Andre Terzik. Thanks again. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.